Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. For 25 years, I've been helping organizations and the leaders who run them improve performance. Now I travel the world to interview geniuses about the trends shaping the way we live and work. There are two trends that have dominated the last 20 years. The first is the incredible advancement in computing technology. It's transformed just about every element of human life. The second trend is the rise in terrorism. While terrorism has been a reality for many years, the acts of 9-11-2001 ensured a response that would change the lives for billions of people around the world. Our guest today was a central figure in the investigation of those violent crimes. Harry Samet is a retired FBI agent best known for the arrest of Al-Qaeda operative Zacharias Moussaoui. Harry and I talk about 9-11, how those attacks forever changed counterterrorism, and we discuss how terrorism is shifting from violent foreign organizations to domestic terrorism. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by the Think to Perform Research Institute, an organization committed to advancing moral, purposeful, and emotionally intelligent leadership. You can learn more and access the Institute's latest research at T, the number two, PRI.org. Harry, welcome to 12 Geniuses. You are a retired FBI agent. Could you start off by talking about your career pre-FBI? So I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on the East Coast. Fairly normal upbringing. I went to a public high school. After that, I went to Penn State in State College, Pennsylvania. I attended there on a Navy ROTC scholarship. Um, that's kind of what made uh, college fun and interesting for me because I always wanted to be a naval officer. That's something growing up that was what I wanted to do. After four years, I, I was commissioned as an ensign in the Navy. I spent 10 years on active duty as an intelligence officer, serving in a variety of different commands, almost all related to aviation. Uh, along the way, I picked up my private pilot's license. But in 1995, there was an event I think we all remember that uh, really caused me to kind of change course. And that was the uh, Oklahoma City bombing. I think like a lot of Americans, I was I was shocked by that. I hadn't heard of terrorism before. I didn't know that there was such a thing as terrorism, let alone that there was domestic or international terrorism. And when that happened, it really kind of jolted me because I'd been focused my whole career on external threats, you know, overseas threats. And now for the first time, I became aware that, that people in the United States hated the government or hated groups of people and wanted to wanted to hurt our citizens. And so... I decided that I was going to change course and become an FBI agent. In 1995, I, I casually started applying. I figured, you know, I was a naval officer. I was a pilot. It would be relatively easily to get easy to get hired, and that wasn't the case. It, it took me four years, so I wasn't actually able to start the FBI Academy until January of 1999. And what were you doing when you initially became an FBI agent? I went through Quantico. Uh, my first four plus months was training in all things law enforcement, federal law enforcement. About six weeks into that process, I found out I was coming to Minneapolis, to the Minneapolis field office. The Minneapolis field office was just starting its own joint terrorism task force. And what does that mean? Is that a group of local police and sheriffs and FBI, federal agents? What, is, what does that joint team mean? And exactly like you said, it brings together state, local, and other federal investigators together in a cohesive unit that work together, you know, partners, we partner up with other agents from other agencies or police officers from other departments, and we investigate terrorism. And so it brings together all these other folks. And that really has two advantages. 
the one advantage is additional manpower, right? We get other investigators. You know, if there's the JTTF at the time probably had seven or eight FBI agents on it and four or five task force officers, which is police officers or agents from other federal agencies. So they nearly doubled our size right there. So the manpower thing is is a huge bolster to the capabilities. But then also jurisdictionally, we get increased jurisdiction by having police officers and federal agents from other agencies. Because if you add an immigration agent, as we did, then we have someone who can work immigration issues. If we add a police officer, then someone who can work state and local crimes. And so that really gave us an increased capability. And so the manpower and the increased jurisdiction are kind of the hard the hard capabilities that, you know, that somebody can quantify on a piece of paper. The soft advantage, the soft capability is some really skilled, experienced investigators who had been there and done that and seen a lot of things. And that really, that was the intangible bolster to our capabilities. But that summer of 1999, when those new folks came on board, it really enhanced our capabilities. And how big was your area of responsibility or your jurisdiction? So the Minneapolis Field Division is the whole state of Minnesota and then North and South Dakota. How do you define terrorism? What does it include or exclude? So I'll give you the FBI, kind of the, the standard U.S. government definition, and I think it's a pretty good one. Uh, it's a group of people committing violence in order to coerce a government or population politically. What that includes is any either act or threat of violence that is intended to, to coerce people into to doing something politically. That's really interesting because what has been puzzling to me is that a lot of times mass shootings are not included in terrorism statistics where I would, you know, just looking at the word terror, that is a very terrifying episode. But the reason I asked that is I wanted, you know, for the rest of the conversation here, have let people have a pretty good idea of what the working definition is here. And I think that's a fair one. And, you know, to take your to take your mass shooting example, if there's no political objective, if there's no attempt to coerce a population, however terrifying it is, and I completely agree, and however violent and and tragic and all those things are, if, if the person is motivated to do the shooting by um, even by a grievance, which is a major part of terrorism, too, if they're not trying to coerce a population, if they just want to send a message that they're angry or hate filled or any of the variety of reasons behind motivations behind these mass shootings, it's still not terrorism. So about two and a half years into your career, you became pretty well known. Could you talk about August of 2001, what happened and how things uh, unfolded from there? On August 15th, 2001, um, was a, a summer day in Minnesota. I was a, an agent on the JTTF. I'd had two and a half years under my belt. So I, I think it's it's safe to say that I'd seen everything in international terrorism about one time. So by two and a half years in, I think I'd seen everything once. Uh, I wouldn't say I developed any particular expertise, but at least I had had experienced things. The duty agent that day was a was an agent named Dave Rapp. Dave was a brand new agent. I want to say he had less than six months in the FBI. And because of that, when he received a call from a person, and what the duty agent does is they take calls from the general public and walk-ins from people. And so he was doing his job and he got a call from a flight instructor at Pan Am International Flight Academy in Egan who had a student that was very suspicious. The flight instructor who called from the flight school said that they had a student unlike any that they'd ever experienced before. He didn't have a pilot's license, but he was paying for very expensive simulator time 
to learn to fly the Boeing 747 400 series airliner. They believed he was foreign and he just was suspicious and evasive and they were concerned and they called the FBI. No one who's new to flying would start with a 747, right? Right, correct. So then what happened What happened after that? You, you got this tip from somebody in Egan, Minnesota at this flight school. What happens next? So one of the first things we did was determine that he was not a U.S. citizen, which changes the threshold for our ability to open an investigation. It's easier for us to, to open a case on someone who is not either a U.S. citizen or a legal permanent resident. So based on the fact pattern, the foreign connection, the suspicious flight training, we were able to open an investigation. Although television doesn't do a great job of this, one of the, the kind of the stock and trade tools of being an FBI agent is this thing that, that whether it's Quantico or Criminal Minds or any of the other FBI shows out there, really don't emphasize, but is the most important thing about being an FBI agent, and that is talking to people. And so one of the first steps that we took was I called the flight instructor who had spent the most time with Musawi just to get his feel. So, so we are talking about Zacharias Musawi. For, for people who are listening, to spill the beans here, we're talking about the 20th hijacker from the 9-11 attacks, Zacharias Musawi. So that, that's the case we're talking about here. So take us back to the morning of the 15th. We finished out the morning of the 15th doing background checks to see what we could find on Musawi, which was very little. FBI had almost nothing, nothing on him. Immigration, and this is the, the value of the JTTF, we had an immigration agent right there who ran him and discovered something that we rarely, if ever, get in a case, and that is that he was arrestable right away. Uh, the reason that he was is because he had come into the United States as part of the Visa Waiver Program, which is a tourist visa. Essentially, if you come from Western Europe or some countries in Asia, you can get into the United States without a visa, provided there's two big conditions. One is that you come as a tourist and you're not going to work or study or, or do anything like that. And two, that you depart in 90 days. Musawi agreed to those conditions, but he didn't follow those because he, of course, enrolled as a flight student. And then in August, from February to August, was here well over 90 days. So right away, he was arrestable. Early that afternoon, I called his flight instructor and spoke to him on the phone. I wanted to kind of get a sense for the, the impetus for the person behind the suspicions, just to see if, you know, if he was credible, you know, if he was someone who was maybe, you know, well-intentioned, but a little unstable. And the guy was a retired Northwest Airlines airline captain, and he was completely credible. And he told us a bunch of things about his student that really raised concerns. And what were those concerns or what were the, uh, he paid cash. He right. And 747, no, no, no background, right. No pilot's license, but he wanted in-depth training in the 747, 400. He paid cash. He was very suspicious about his background. The flight instructor found him very chatty and willing to talk and sociable, but he wouldn't discuss himself. And so that struck the flight instructor as odd. So this is the 15th. What happens after the 15th? So on the 16th, we agreed to meet the flight instructor in person. We wanted to talk to him one more time. We went to the flight school early on the 16th and got Mr. Musawi's flight schedule. Uh, the staff there cooperated. And we saw that Musawi was scheduled for his first live simulator session at 6 p.m. that night. That was significant because up until that point, he hadn't touched a simulator yet. He hadn't put his hands on the controls. He hadn't, you know, everything had been classroom or manuals. He hadn't touched the simulator. And so 
we decided we were going to talk to his flight instructor. We're going to sit down with that gentleman and do an interview, which we did in the lobby of his hotel. And based on what we heard from there, we would make a game day decision, but we were leaning very heavily towards arresting him right then and there. So he couldn't get his hands on the controls of the 747. Because, you know, as a pilot, I understood, and my supervisor on the squad was a pilot too. We all understood there's a huge difference between academics and classroom learning and, and what it means to actually pilot an airplane. And so we had a chance, just luckily, to arrest him, to head him off before he got his hands on the controls and, and gained any skills at all. And so we were determined to do that. So you arrest him on the 16th? Yep. Around 5, 10 p.m. Uh, he came out of his hotel. We set up about 4 p.m. Uh, in a surveillance configuration. Uh, it's laughable when I, tell, when I tell this to new agents today. There were only four of us out there. There were two immigration agents and two FBI agents. In this day and age, the post 9-11 era, there would be six, eight, ten people out there for the arrest. But back then there were four. He was staying in the hotel with a companion, uh, a student from the University of Oklahoma who drove him up here from, from there. The student came out of the hotel first. We detained him. And then about five minutes later, Musawi came out and we arrested him. And at that point, what sort of suspicions did you have about him? Everything was increasing. Concerns were increasing based on what the flight instructor said. And then with the information provided by the flight school, the, the cash payments, that only amplified it. When, when we achieved our first contact with Musawi and talked to him, he behaved very atypically as well. Everything he did was alerting. Like what? He was very belligerent and combative. And in our experience, you know, an, an innocent person in that situation, even a, a harmless crackpot or somebody who's an aviation enthusiast would say, ah, you know, you're right. I made an immigration mistake. Sorry, my, my problem. But, you know, he became belligerent. He had a, a weapon at the time we searched him. He had, a, he had a dagger in his pocket, which, again, not something a normal person would carry. Once we placed him in handcuffs and, and put him in an immigration vehicle to transport him, I tried to get him to calm down a little bit and talk to him and, you know, pilot stuff and just say, hey, I fly, you fly, let's talk. It's my experience. Most people like to talk about who are pilots like to talk flying. He, he had no interest in that. Just a variety of things. And then once he was gone and had been taken to the, the immigration custody facility, we started to interview his companion. And what the companion told us was you know, incredibly alarming. Like what? That so the companion was a was a co-conspirator for sure. He he had some degree of knowledge. Musawi was here to carry out something on behalf of a foreign power. He knew Musawi was an Islamic extremist. This was not a straightforward linear interview. The person was you know, his his companion's name was a guy named Hussein Alatas. Uh, Mr. Alatas was very resistant to our interviews, um, but at length and then probably at the end of a two-hour interview, he acknowledged that Musawi was an Islamic extremist, that he supported violence against non-Muslims. Um, he would not acknowledge knowing about any plot or any plan, but he painted a pretty concerning picture of his companion. Who was interrogating Musawi on the, on the night of the 16th? So he was transported to the facility. We talked to his companion first, and then after his companion, myself and my partner, John Weiss, an immigration agent, he and I then went and interviewed Mr. Musawi that night. Okay, for how long? Probably about 90 minutes. And what did you get out of him? So that interview was remarkable more for what he did not reveal. Obviously, Mr. Musawi was, as we know now, a camp-trained Al-Qaeda fighter and operative who was sent to the United States by Osama bin Laden to crash an airplane into the White House. However, his behavior that night 
Uh, at least his cover story was that he was a businessman. He came to the United States to learn how to fly. He had family taking care of business back in the UK and in France where he was based. Um, this was all just a big misunderstanding. And so we asked some very basic questions. You know, what's the name of your business? Where did you earn your money? What products do you sell? Where have you worked in the past? And he couldn't answer any of those questions. The interesting thing is, too, that uh, there was an underlying hostility towards us that, that's just not common, right? You know, he's the guy that made the immigration mistake. We're trying to, to kind of get the facts, and, and he, we could tell he really was hostile towards us and, and hated us. What sort of interactions do you have him with him after the 16th? We interviewed him again the next day. John and I agreed that at the outset that we were not going to push too hard the first night. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that, you know, as an interview technique. Uh, we want to start fresh again the next day. We want to give him a, a night to sleep on it. We also want to create the impression that we've done background check, right? So that when we come in the next day, we can say, oh, we found a bunch of stuff on you, which wasn't true. And so we transported him to, to an immigration, to a county facility that had an immigration contract. So he spent that night in jail and then we brought him back the next day. We re-interviewed his friend Hussein Alatas that morning and got him to make some additional admissions. And then in the afternoon of the 17th, we re-interviewed Mr. Musawi. And between the time you arrest him and September 10th, you have a pretty good idea that this is there's something big going on and you're trying to get access to evidence or some sort of search warrant or something like that. What, what's, what's happening between those two dates, August 17th and September 10th? So when we arrested Mr. Musawi, we went back into his hotel room with him because he claimed he had immigration documents that could show he was legally in the United States. When we got in the hotel room, we could see that he had almost all of his household goods with him. He had notebooks, he had documents, he had a laptop computer. He, you know, picture what you, what a person in a small apartment would have. Of course, we did what what any law enforcement officer does, what any investigator does, and we asked him for consent to search those items, and he emphatically denied that. He said, "Absolutely not." So, you, if you're in the room, you still don't have a right to search. Absolutely. The only thing, you know, and and this is kind of legal one on one, but the only thing we had a right to search was um, his person. Exactly, incident to arrest. We were able to look at anything on his person. But because we caught him on the sidewalk outside the hotel room and it was outside of his lunging area, you know, and we certainly couldn't read through documents or access his computer hard drive without a search warrant. And so we asked him. Uh, he said no, emphatically no. And again, not typical of someone who's innocent is to, you know, make such a vehement objection to our even asking him. And so the only solution for us to conduct the search was a search warrant. Could you have gotten consent from his companion since they were in the hotel together? We could, and we did get consent to remove Musawi's goods from the hotel room and transport them to immigration, but we couldn't get consent to do things like read his books. And and so his friend did give us consent to search his stuff, and we did. We searched Alatas' stuff. Let's imagine that you had access to his notebooks, his laptop computer, et cetera, and were able to investigate them. Prior to September 11th, what do you think could have happened? Good question. Well phrased, because I the question I get all the time in that same note is, could you have stopped 9-11? I always stay away from the counterfactual because I don't know the answer to that. What could have happened? So the material contained, especially in the notebooks. Now, naturally, we, we saw the laptop computer and probably the dozen or more notebooks. But we focused on the laptop computer first, right? That contains 
could potentially contain the most information. So the laptop was the focus of our interest. Ironically, it didn't have a lot. After 9-11, when it was searched, um, it was found to have been essentially wiped. The hard drive was wiped prior, sometime prior to our getting our hands on it. But what was in the notebooks would have been enough to link him to the hijackers, and in fact was enough to link him to the hijackers after the 9-11 attacks. The big question, which I think will always have to remain unanswered, is could we have done it in the three and a half weeks? Would you have investigated the co-conspirators, right? Right. So that, so like I say, the information would in the notebooks would certainly have gotten us to the co-conspirators. The question is, though, would we have been able to do that as quickly? Post 9-11, there was obviously a lot of impetus. It required the cooperation of the German government, which post 9-11 came fast and furious. Now, can I have said that in the third, fourth week of August 2001, would the Germans have been that quick? I don't know. Did the FBI at that time think that an attack of the size, scale, sophistication of 9-11 would even be possible? Here in Minneapolis, could we have imagined a, a multi-plane you know, suicide attack? I don't know. We certainly imagined a single-plane suicide attack with Mr. Musawi because the other question that I and others on my squad at the time get all the time is, how do you know he was going to carry out a suicide attack using an airliner? You know, you couldn't possibly have predicted that before 9-11. Well, the short answer is that we did. And the reason that we were able to do that is this, you know, the histories vary, but the different places I've researched it, the first hijacking of a commercial aircraft took place in the 20s or 30s. I've seen both, but 70 years ago, 80 years ago. And at no time between 1927 and 2001 had any hijacker ever needed to have flight training, right? And you don't need to know how to fly an airplane to hijack it, right? You, you put a gun or a knife to a flight attendant's head, and the pilot will fly you where you want to go, Cuba, Angola. And do it safely. And do it safely. <laughs> and do it better than you could. Right, right. That's Because that's it's his airplane. Right, yeah. yeah. So why do you need to learn how to fly the airplane yourself? The only answer is, is because you're going to do something with that airplane that you can't make the pilot do. And, and what is that? You know, there's only, there's only one answer to that. And so, yes, before 9-11, we imagined a, at least a one airplane suicide bomb. And then what became your focus starting on 9-11 or the day after? So absolutely, the, the, what ultimately became the Pent bomb, major case, you know, the Pen Pentagon bombing major case. Probably for the next year plus, that's, that's all myself and my partner, John Weiss, did was work this case towards identifying other living co-conspirators and then preparing for the trial. Do you have any regrets regarding how things played out or, I guess, personal regrets? I, I'm sure you have regrets that you didn't get the, the search warrant. So I do. Uh, you know, experience is the best teacher in adversity for sure. You know, if I had it to do over again, I would have elevated it even higher. I was insubordinate. I was aggressive. I, you know, I did all the things and exceeded all the things that were considered good etiquette for a, a two and a half year agent to do. If I'd been a 21 year agent at the time, I absolutely would have gone higher. I would have called the director himself. I would, you know, to save 3000 lives, I would have done anything within the law. And I regret that I didn't do that. Could you talk about the state of counterterrorism today or Maybe just start with the, the state of terrorism today. So I think as, in, as incidents recently in France or in Austria and France have shown us, these Islamic extremists, the international scene, uh, they're not going to go away. They are struggling to be relevant. They are struggling to 
you know, have a voice, certainly in France. They're at odds with the government constantly trying to coerce them, uh, you know, by increasingly horrific acts of violence, you know, beheading a teacher. And, and so that, that shows us it hasn't gone away. Um, you know, one of the biggest uh, things that's kind of caused the threat, I think the perception that the threat has diminished to the United States is that by and large, the destruction of the Islamic State overseas by the military uh, in the last three years. You know, the fact is, and, and as much as Americans don't like their troops overseas, and frankly, I don't either, fighting them overseas is a great alternative to have them running rampant here in the United States. And so uh, to the extent that they can be dislocated and kept off balance at their, in their havens and their safe havens overseas, it really diminishes the threat here in the United States. As long as that continues where, you know, we use air power and drones and special operations forces overseas to continue pursuing them into their havens, I think they're going to be too off balance to launch attacks, organized 9-11 types attacks into the United States. Okay. So you're, you're basically saying that extreme Islam is declining, but it, it has not gone away. The huge attacks have not seemed to have happened in the last couple of years. Is that accurate? It is. It's it's accurate. I would not I would not characterize extreme Islam as as declining. What I would say is that the destruction of these groups overseas has hurt their ability to finance, to inspire, to train, to to provide kind of guidance to people who are dormant in the West to carry out these attacks. And so, you know, when the military does things like go in and kills Baghdadi or kills bin Laden, it really destroys a significant capability of the group to project its power. And so keeping them off balance. Now, the grievances are there. You know, the angry people are there. They're just on the run. They just don't have the capability to project power. As soon as that pressure is taken off and as soon as they can establish a safe haven and finance and with the, the ready availability of social media, they're, they'll be able to inspire again. That's a really good point. So it's it's not dead, but it's maybe a little dormant or they are on the run. And when you're on the run, it's very difficult to mobilize, communicate, inspire, like you said. Where are the threats to U.S. citizens today? The Islamic State's not dead. Al-Shabaab in Somalia, you know, still remains a viable threat. There's Al-Qaeda offshoots in a variety of, of different countries where, you know, they're actively aspiring to carry out attacks or planning to carry out attacks. There's also the white nationalist, white supremacist movement, which is becoming international. You know, any group of people that has a grievance, and, and you know, it's an important point to talk about today and compare and contrast it to, to yesteryear. You know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, um, there were people with grievances. There were, pe you know, people who wanted to coerce, you know, use political power and, and coerce, but they didn't have social media. And so the, the really the only enemy that they could see and the only enemy that they could inspire their operatives against. And the, really the only way to project power was against lo the local threat. And so the globalization of communications and the internet has made it a worldwide thing. And so now one thing that no PLO operative had in you know 1972, but every terrorist has today is a smartphone in their pocket. And so that smartphone is not only communication with people anywhere in the world, but it, it's a storehouse, it's a library full of knowledge. Today is November 13th, 2020. We just had an election last week. There's a president-elect Joe Biden. President Trump, as far as I know, has not conceded the election. I've not been following the news today. Are you concerned? Would you be concerned that there could be some terrorist activity as a result of what's happening with this election? For sure. You know, we've seen with the 
spring through summer through fall with the tensions rising high, you know, running high in the United States. Absolutely. I've said the word several times throughout this discussion and, and whether it applies to an international terrorism organization or a domestic terrorism organization, it's the word grievance. And people in, in 2020, in November of 2020, people have grievances. Are the grievances right or justified? You know, certainly I don't think Al-Qaeda's grievances are justified. Certainly I don't think the white nationalist grievances are justified. The Marxists, the, you know, any of these people with grievances, they never justify violence. I think everyone with a grievance certainly has reason to be aggrieved, whether historically or in the present day. But I don't think any of those in, in 2020 justify rioting or shooting or bombing or any of the types of violence that we see associated with terrorism. And so I would hope, although I, to answer your question, yes, I think there's a threat. I would hope that people would be able to handle these things through litigation or social change, but I'm not optimistic. I think some of the people who are feeling aggrieved are very narrowly focused in getting a certain message, whether it be on social media or through traditional media. And, and that's probably the echo chamber that is driving them to be aggrieved. And it's hard, it's hard to, con, you know, having sat with a few white supremacists and a whole lot of Islamic extremists, it doesn't matter what, what their ethnic background or their racial background or, you know, even what their grievance is, it, it, it crosses racial ethnic lines. When a person has a grievance, it's hard to, to, for the layperson to understand that this becomes their, their everything. It becomes their interest. If you like fantasy football, their grievance is fantasy football. If you enjoy gardening or driving race cars or pick, pick any one of the number of hobbies that normal people have, whatever it is, listening to music, playing music, the grievance becomes their hobby. And so it's hard to convey to the, to the layperson, and I want to leave them with that, that, that behind every act of terrorism and every terrorist group, there is a grievance. And it's not a grievance like your neighbor raked his leaves onto your lawn. You know, these are historical, ancient, hate-filled grievances that grow to become everything to these people. And, and it's dangerous. You uh, talked earlier on about the use of human intelligence gathering versus the reliance on technology. Could you talk about the benefits or how one is better than the other or how you've used one over the other? One is not necessarily better than the other. There are two different techniques. Technical intelligence can give us lots of things. For sure, I think they should be used together and I would never favor one over the other. I can say that at different times in the United States history, specifically during the Cold War, the intelligence community as a whole favored technical intelligence over human intelligence for, for some pretty valid reasons. And I understand the reasons. Human intelligence is complicated, right? It's messy. People are flawed. And the people who agree to be intelligence sources are more flawed than the average. You know, when I think back to some of my, my sources, these are, these are deeply, profoundly flawed human beings in a lot of ways. They're not someone that you would want to meet in the cul-de-sac and have a beer with on a Saturday afternoon. They're not people who are capable of productive, meaningful lives, except that they can help as sources. So I get it. Sources betray you. Sources mess up. Sources oversleep in a way that technical collection capability doesn't, right? You're, you know, a satellite that's monitoring communications or taking pictures of imagery on the ground is, is not going to fail that way. But having a person, however flawed, however messed up, sitting around a campfire with other terrorists, listening to the plans is invaluable, right? As they talk about, we're going to shoot up this 
this town square. We're going to, you know, kill this politician. And so I would say there's no separating them. They both technical and human means need to be used and need to be continue to be used as messy as they are. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because I think that that sentiment can be applied to all sorts of work. You know, there's this, you know, I kind of get it, got into 12 geniuses and doing these podcasts because I was worried about how fast technology is moving and how there's this sense that technology is going to replace us all artificial intelligence and robots. And that's just not true. It's the combination when you, when you combine the human being with the leading technologies that can be very, very powerful. And using those together, I think is, is where, you know, huge advantages can be uh, given to organizations that figure that out. Agreed. I mean, and it's inseparable, right? I mean, I think, I think throughout history, history is complete with examples, replete with examples of, oh, well, this is going to end that, right? Nuclear weapons were going to end conventional war after World War II, right? We don't need armies because it's all going to be fought with nuclear weapons. Well, here we are 75 years later and we have soldiers and sailors. And I think we've always thought that it's, it's very common to think, okay, now we've arrived technologically. We're not, this is all going to be gone in five years and it's just not the case. So getting back to the future of counterterrorism, are there any potential domestic threats that we haven't talked about that you see as being important for people to keep an eye on? So certainly the the white nationalists, the the, the boogaloo boys, and all the kind of associated ones they, they concern me, especially when you hear that you know there's a cadre of military ex military people because that brings with it training and organization and weapons, operational security, which is as important as that. Certainly bears watching. It would be lovely if we could persuade all of these folks to use your political process. The problem is now the narrative that the election somehow is stolen or is, is going to be fuel on that fire, I'm afraid. We talked about Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, any other international threats that you think are maybe not known today by many people in the United States, but could be potential threats? Well, there's the there's the certainly the biggest kid on the block by far in terms of capability, and that's uh, Hezbollah, uh, which is a Shia, Lebanese Shia group, completely backed, bankrolled, trained by Iran. Uh, tremendous threat, far and away the most capable terrorist threat in the world. Now, the Iranians have never, well, not never, but the Iranians in, in recent years have not unleashed it on Americans, but it's an extraordinarily capable international terrorism threat. Two more questions for you. Through my research, I found that the FBI for the first time has identified fringe conspiracy theories as a domestic terrorist threat. Is that accurate? I could see it, right, with the power of social media. Right. You know, one of the things that that we are that the FBI was concerned about during my time and certainly should be is the power to inspire, right? You have the grievance, you have the people who who feel the grievance, and then you need a catalyst to say, hey, we should focus our grievance and do this. And so, you know, radical Islam is certainly that catalyst, well, if you look at these fringe conspiracy theories like radical Islam as kind of the, you know, the spark that ignites the the fuel, then yeah, it's a terrorist threat. And what's amazing about it is that it doesn't even have to be somebody creating it who believes it with, with fake news and with uh, Russian interference and, and people kind of fomenting and trying to create doubt in our, in our system. And it's not just the United States, it's in other countries as well. 
the last question I wanted to ask you about is just a day in the life of an FBI agent versus a police officer. And the reason why I wanted to ask this is because we got connected because I wanted to do an episode on the future of law enforcement. And you said, I'm more of a counterterrorism expert, not necessarily a law enforcement expert. But over the course of the summer, the police officers in most cities around the country have really been negatively labeled. And I think it's important for people to understand that not all police officers are bad people. Obviously, you served on a joint task force with a lot of police officers and people who are local law enforcement. So could you just describe what the day in the life of a police officer is like? So an FBI agent, you know, within kind of strict confines based on where they work and what violation they work, Almost every FBI agent starts their day by going in the office. They, you know, there's a lot of email checking. I would say that, you know, pick, pick someone who, who works in a kind of a white collar function in any corporation. Um, while not all of their day is going to look like it, a good portion of it, a typical FBI agent's day is going to look like that. Now, there's people on fugitive task force. There's people on the drug squads or violent crime squads who may be out more often, be out on the street more. But for the most part, FBI agents have the luxury that police don't have of being able to pick and choose when they go out on the street, when they encounter subjects, when they encounter sources, and so we can plan accordingly. If, as an FBI agent, I was going to go arrest one of my subjects, that was the, that was the culmination of several hours, if not days, of planning. And then we would pick a time when that person was going to be least likely to be dangerous to themselves or to us and go grab them. And so police officers don't have that luxury, right? They're Unless they're an investigator or a detective, if they are a patrol officer, they are by definition in an unknown environment their entire shift, right? They don't know, you know, we know we have our eyes in the front of our head. We don't know what we can see around us. They are in a uniform. They are in a marked vehicle. Every single person that they encounter has different views of them, of their value as human beings, of how they are, ranging from a love and admiration of law enforcement all the way to, to grievance-laden hatred of law enforcement. And so every situation that a police officer walks into, not every, but the vast majority are unknown, unplanned. And so while we're both in law enforcement, it is such a vastly different situation for a, a police officer on the street. I can tell you that the police officers I worked with, both in, in the investigative capacity, who were task force officers on the JTTF, police officers in uniform who we would occasionally go out and help with different activities, they were dedicated professionals. I can say that it sounds cliched, but it really is true that as someone in law enforcement, seeing a police officer violate someone's rights, hurt someone gratuitously and do all those things is, is intolerable. It's just, it's outrageous. And the vast majority of people in law enforcement, whether they're wearing blue or they're wearing a business suit, or they're wearing jeans and a t-shirt because they're doing something undercover. It's intolerable to all of us. The difference is the stress level that a police officer feels is infinitely higher. Were you ever scared on the job? Oh, absolutely. For sure. Could you talk about a circumstance where you were? A lot of overseas activity where probably it's the closest an FBI agent comes to what a street cop experiences here in the States because we didn't control the environment, right? When, I, when I'm overseas, Sometimes I'm armed, but more often than not, I'm not armed. And even as an American, not even as an FBI agent, because it wasn't obvious to the people around me that I was an FBI agent, but I don't know how they feel about me. And so I'm in 
I'm in unfamiliar ground where I don't control, where I have no legal authority, where people may or may not hate me as American, you know, as an American. Certainly that is, that's a scary, stressful environment. Probably the, the highest stress arrest in the United States ever was when I was a member of the SWAT team. We had a, a gang member, an armed, violent gang member. And of course, and everybody who's been on a SWAT team you know, or who's been on a high-arrest team will, will laugh when they hear this because it's the standard thing. But when you're getting the pre-arrest briefing, of course, like I said, we get a lot of planning before we go do these arrests and there's a lot. But everyone always says, oh, this subject told an informant, told his friend he's not going to be taken alive. And so every single arrest starts that way where, oh, this guy's not going to go back to jail. Well, this was one of those. This guy was a gang member on, in North Minneapolis. He'd been arrested before. He wasn't going to be taken alive. We came into the house. It was early in the morning, right? Because we knew this guy didn't get up till the middle of the day. We we're calling him out. FBI search warrant. FBI come out, come out. We hear him from upstairs. So I was one of the first people on the stairs. I got my my weapon pointed upstairs. Started giving him commands. He says, "Okay, I'm coming out. I'm coming out of the bedroom," which is good. You know, we want to hear compliance. And what does he do? But he pushes his seven year old son out ahead of him. Obviously, you know, father. I'm a father myself, all of us, but he shielded behind his son and came down the steps. Now, fortunately for everybody, and thank God for this, he was not intending to hurt us. He just wanted to shield behind his son. So as soon as one of us could, we got our hands on the kid gently because it's not the kid's fault. And we, you know, we gently moved the kid out of the way and then handcuffed the dad. It was a happy ending for sure. But that was the the tensest situation for a variety of reasons, right? Is he going to hurt us? What's going to happen to this kid? Obviously, the terror on the kid's face was a painful memory etched in my, my mind's eye forever, but yeah, that had to, had to be the worst is too. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. You've got a book coming out. Tell us what we're going to learn in this book and when it's going to come out. So I'm, I'm working on a book. Um, it's essentially a memoir of my first eight years in the FBI. It encompasses the the Musawi investigation and then two other major Al Qaeda figures who were arrested here in the twin cities. I'm kind of in the final stages of editing it now. It will have to go through the FBI's pre-publication review policy and their process. So I really don't have a great sense for when it'll be released yet, hopefully in the next year or so. I really had two goals here. One was a good historical record of the nine, of the events around 9-11, which we've really just touched on today. For a variety of reasons, which I address in the book, I don't think anybody has really gotten the complete, unadulterated day one to day 1000 view of these counter of these international terrorism investigations. People don't know all the facts behind 9-11, certainly from Minneapolis, you know, what was going on here. So the historical record. And then I also want to give a day in the life of an FBI agent. You know, a lot of people don't, don't have a good sense, although they're very interested in what it's like to interview a subject, what it's like to talk to an informant, what it's like to, to make an arrest. And so I think from pure interest in that, I think people will hopefully consume those stories and, and find them helpful. What's the public responsibility in helping with counterterrorism? And the reason I ask that is because it, post 9-11, it was if you see something, say something, and you don't see that very often anymore. What, what should people be looking out for and doing if they see something suspicious? So excellent question. So what I always talked about when when I was in the bureau and I was talking to people about this topic is suspicious behaviors. Unfortunately, people tended, especially after 9-11, uh, with the memories fresh and the pictures of the hijackers on TV every night, people tended to focus on certain groups, you know, people from the Middle East, Muslims. That That is not 
what they should be focusing on. They should focus on suspicious behaviors. People who are doing things that are out of the ordinary, and, and not just quirky, weird, strange things, but, but things that have some element of, of violence or potential for violence. Musawi is a great example. Um, you know, one of the things that made his flight instructor so credible to us when we started interviewing him was he's like, yeah, I don't know if this is anything. I don't really know where this guy's from. I don't know if he's from the Middle East, if he's a Muslim. And then he immediately launched into a list of probably half a dozen or more behaviors that were concerning. That's the most compelling thing. It's compelling to an investigator. It should be compelling to a member of the public. If you see behaviors that don't make sense, you know, somebody who drives a taxi cab, but they have a lot of money, you know, a neighbor who drives a cab, but they have a lot of money or someone whose house, you know, they have a lot of transient people coming and going, certainly weapons, explosives, but national origin, we're not interested in, you know, we're not interested in, in investigating someone because they're from the Middle East or because they're Muslim. We're interested in behaviors. And so they should focus on suspicious behaviors and behaviors rooted in violence. Behaviors over characteristics. That's great. Absolutely. Yeah. This has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time and coming down here to chat with me. Harry, thank you for being a genius. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. And thank you to our sponsor, the Think to Perform Research Institute. This was the final interview of season three. We are truly grateful you're willing to spend your time with us. If you've enjoyed 12 Geniuses, please consider leaving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app so we can reach a broader audience. For season four, we continue on the theme of the future with 12 more episodes starting in January, including the future of education, the future of artificial intelligence, and the future of climate change. Devin McGrath is our production assistant. Brian Bierbaum is our research and historical consultant. Toby, Tony, Jay, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London make sure the sound and editing are phenomenal. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius. <laughs>